0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Saint John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beginning with the 22nd verse of the third chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, Look! He's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Please join me in prayer. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I created Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today is Godette Sunday, or rejoice or have joy Sunday in English. Multiple scholars have pointed out that there's three types of joy that we find in the Bible. The joy of anticipation, the joy of oasis, the joy of sorrow undone. I'll repeat that for you just so it sticks in your head. Three types of joy. The joy of anticipation the joy of oasis, the joy of sorrow undone. Each one is a little bit different in its nuance. And the three types of joy correspond, respectively, to the seasons of Advent in the church, mid-Lent in the church, and Easter in the church, each one helping to instruct the Christian who is instructed today by St. Paul in his epistle to the Thessalonians to rejoice Always. Rejoice always, St. Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And I think the church does this on purpose because it's not just rejoice when times are happy, right? But it's rejoice always, which gives us an insight into the fact that this joy given by God is different than the type of happiness and and um, gladness in our English sense of the word that we have. And yet, in the older languages, gladness, joy, rejoicing, all those kind of come together in this concept. But let's look at the three types of joy real quick. What's the joy of sorrow undone? Well, the ultimate for this, of course, is seen in Easter. What seemed hopeless? The death of the Messiah, the death of the Anointed One. But then death itself being swallowed up by death and the resurrection. Sorrow has been redeemed. He was dead, now he lives is the most basic definition of that type of joy. And we see that expressed in the women at the tomb, right? As well as in the hearts of the disciples. Although some are a little bit late to the party, right? Thomas and, and all that. But now he lives. Sorrow has been undone. Where do we see that in our own lives? Well, maybe a wrong medical test result that was falsely come by has now been corrected and the news is good. Sorrow has been redeemed. Or the news that someone was lost and they actually survived, right? Right? We don't see this so much now in war, but that happened all the time in wars where someone was missing or someone uh, was was, uh, presumed dead. But no, in fact, they were alive. And of course, what joy people met that with. These are serious reversals of what was thought permanent to which even an atheist would reply, Oh, thank God. Second, The joy of relief. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I have finished in my course of reading, rereading some of my Winston Churchill books from college. Uh, I finished his My Early Life, which is the first 30 years of his life. It's really fascinating. You know, Churchill is a fascinating character because he spans from the Victorian era into the modern era, era, dying in the mid-60s. But... There's one incident that illustrates what is the joy of relief that jumped to mind as I was reading about this this week. In his early life, he recalls between his stints in the army that he traveled with a friend to Lake Geneva in Switzerland. And he was beholding the great beauty of it. And they decided to go out in a rowboat into this lake and jump off and take a swim. But they didn't put the anchor down. And so here they are in the middle of Lake Geneva, beholding the great beauty, natural beauty surrounding them. And the boat had a canopy, and it starts taking off as a gentle wind picks up. And they swim and swim and swim as hard as they can, but they can't seem to reach the boat. Finally, finally, Winston, who at this point is in the best you know years of his life, swims with all of his might, gets a hand onto the boat, And is able to stop it long enough to save himself and his friend to climb up onto the boat. He was facing certain death in the middle of this great beauty. And so he pulls his friend up. And that, dear friends, is the feeling of the joy of Oasis. The joy of Oasis. The fact that you were going to go down if something didn't change. And you grabbed on and you held on to the boat and were now in safety. What a difference a foot makes, an inch makes in such a situation. The joy of relief, the joy of oasis. Finally, there's the joy of anticipation. The joy of anticipation is a joy that comes to every human being in life in different ways. It's a little bit more subtle, but it comes when we're awaiting things that are going to happen, and we're certain they're going to happen At least as certain as we can be of anything in this life And It gives us joy just to wait It's the joy that a child has As he or she anticipates Christmas morning The joy that that famous Christmas poem Visions of sugar plums dance to their heads Is trying to capture Right And it's not just a joy for kids. It's a joy for adults, too. In today's gospel, John the Baptist says that his joy is full because he is standing as the friend of the bridegroom and the bride has met the bridegroom. Look at John chapter 3. It's in your insert. You can open up your Bibles to it if you want. It's the very last line. In the gospel reading, he says, This is John the Baptist, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you've ever been the best man or the maid of honor at a wedding, you know this feeling. It's the feeling of having joy for your friend. Right, It's a feeling of joy that's coupled with that other Christian virtue of agape, a charitable type of love, joy for someone else's joy. And John here is overjoyed at this. In the beginning of this past month, our community celebrated a wedding. As the bride walks down the aisle... As Caitlin, I think is back. I think she was on Altar Guild this morning. Thank you, Caitlin. As the bride walks down the aisle and her husband awaits standing here looking down the aisle, that image of him looking towards her also sums up a part of this joy, a part of this joy of anticipation. And that's how God looks at you as the church, dear friends as the groom looks to his bride, he knows she's going to come down the aisle. He knows that she will be given to his hand. That's the image that the gospel writer, John, is setting up for us here in John chapter 3 with the bridegroom and the bride, the bridegroom, of course, being Jesus, the bride being the church, and John the Baptist, if you will, being the best man. That's what's going on. In our gospel passage, we're told that Jesus and his disciples went to a Judean countryside baptizing. A short ways away from his cousin, by the way, who was John the Baptist, and he was baptizing too. And John's disciples seem a little miffed because people are going to Jesus instead of John. What gives? This guy came later. But John's reaction is strange in their eyes far from being competitive or annoyed. Instead, he rejoices as the friend of the bridegroom, as verse 30 tells us. You see, John the Baptist knows that with Christ's arrival, with Jesus' coming, which he foretold and helped to make the path straight for, a new ministry age has begun. Everything has started to change. Unlike the prophet Isaiah, John the Baptist is a prophet who's privileged to see the beginning of what he's prophesied in a way that cannot be denied, the coming of the promised one, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Lord, his arrival. There's even more going on, of course, in Jesus than John knows, I think, at this point. And yet, even so, his joy is full. The joy of Oasis the joy of sorrow undone, and the joy of anticipation are coming together in the person of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, the joy of oasis is wherever God's present. Remember, as God's people are traveling through the hardships of the Old Testament, the Hebrews travel through the wilderness, and they carry with them the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. their meeting place with God In the book of Numbers, chapter 9, verse 15 through 17, we read this. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up and a cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That's how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out, And wherever the clouds settled, the Israelites encamped. It was the very presence of God, that oasis joy, which guided them. For those 70 years wandering through the desert, God literally was the oasis for the Hebrews. Where there was no water, he gave them water from a rock. Where there was no food, he gave them manna. And thus, the sons of men ate the bread of angels. Where there was no meat, he gave them the birds to eat. God resided with Israel again as a cloud of dedication. In Solomon's temple, later on, when they had entered into the Holy Land and Solomon had built the temple, in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14, we see that image as the cloud enters into the temple. And it's so, God's presence is so tangible. It's so thick that the priests can't even do what they're doing. In the temple. (laughs) Can you imagine that? We like our incense here, and sometimes we're slinging it pretty good, but I can always see what I'm doing. That image of God's holiness and presence being in the temple so strongly. And then finally, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departs the temple, presumably not to return again until the advent of Jesus because of the disobedience hard-heartedness of God's people. John the Baptist grasps some of what's going on here. That this is the time that instead of the cloud, the God's presence is here in human form. The imagery of clouds actually comes back later in the New Testament. It's really interesting on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and other places. But here, Jesus is present as God's presence amongst them. The bridegroom has arrived to take the bride And the bridegroom, notice, is taking the bride, taking the bride by what? We talked about last week, holy baptism. It's the act of baptism that is uniting the two, starting this special relationship. Where Jesus is present, dear friends, there's the joy of sorrow redeemed. Where Jesus is present, there's an oasis of joy. Where Jesus is present, the joy of anticipation is partially realized with the promise that it will one day be fully realized. The joy of God is a gift of God. But we must have open eyes to see it. We must have soft hearts to feel it. And perhaps most importantly, we have to have an enduring will to pursue it. How can Jesus increase and we decrease, as John says today? How can that go on? Well, in today's gospel passage, John the Baptist continues to prepare the model, to present himself as a model for the church and for every Christian. He sees Jesus clearly as the groom. He sees the church clearly as the bride. The bearer of joy to his people, Jesus as the groom is to the bride. How do you see Jesus, dear friends? How do you see his church? Does he give you joy? Or more properly, are you open to receiving the joy that he's given you? Because he does give you joy. As a Christian, Jesus is connected to you powerfully by the Holy Spirit and Holy Baptism and beyond in the sacraments, both dwelling in you through his word, through his sacraments, through the community of the church. When Saint Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse sixteen, Rejoice always, be joyful always, this is not a futile. ...or a foolish command. Think about it. What would make it a futile or foolish command? Well, if we didn't have access to the presence of Jesus... ...it would be both foolish and futile. What do I mean? As Christians, we have the presence of Jesus with us. Without his presence... You cannot be joyful always. Without his presence, you cannot be joyful always. Without his presence, you cannot rejoice always, and it would be a foolish command for him to write. Therefore, logically, you have the presence of Jesus. You have access to it. You are capable. On the other hand, it would also be foolish if St. Paul wrote that we should rejoice always And as a Christian, you automatically did it. Actually, that'd be a futile command, right? The foolish one's the first one. futile one's the second one. foolish one would be commanding you to do something you can't do. The second one is commanding you to do something that you always do all the time and have no choice not to do, you see. You don't command someone to do something that they already do automatically. I wouldn't do that. To my dog, Molly, when I go downstairs in the morning and she's poking me with her nose because she wants to eat, I wouldn't give her food in her dish and then walk up to her and say, eat that food, eat that food, eat that food. No, she's scarfing the food down. That'd be stupid. Neither is Paul saying rejoice always. Rejoice always, rejoice always because it's automatically, because you're already doing it. No. No. He's giving us this command because we don't naturally do it, though we can do it. So Scripture's asking you and me, are you joyful? Are you joyful? Are you rejoicing? If so, why not? Why not? Has sorrow gotten into your way? Sorrow can be redeemed. Does your life suck? Maybe you don't hear that often from the pulpit. Does your life suck? Are you swimming around in the the water, grasping at anything you can possibly grasp at, trying to stay afloat? Guess what? Jesus provides the joy of oasis to you, the boat. Are you lamenting something that you don't have here? Perhaps some great loss, some death, some bad news. Jesus will restore that, anticipate with joy what he's going to bring to you. What sorrow in your, what sorrow in your life do you see as unredeemable and have not brought to Jesus? Because we as human beings are foolish. We bring things to Jesus that we should bring to Jesus. We don't bring to things to Jesus that we should bring to Jesus. Because, I don't know, we think he doesn't care about them. Or we think they're too little. Or we think they don't matter to him. Or that we, maybe we think that they're too big for him. Right? I mean, we wouldn't overtly say that. But that's how we treat it. Ah, uh, he, he's not going to deal with that. Dear friends, he was a man of sorrows. He cares. You're his bride. He loves you. He will redeem those things out of your control even. In what ways do you not abide in the joy of Oasis that Jesus offers? God's always present with us in the Holy Spirit. How often do you listen to him in your prayer life or in your reading life? How how often do we just listen and just bask in his presence? I can say, not enough. I'm always rushing on to do the next thing. I don't just sit in his presence nearly enough, refreshed by his oasis. Do we treat the church that way? Do we come to church to drink from a wellspring, to hear from God's word, to hear it applied to our lives in the pulpit through a sermon? Do we come to his table, which is set for us? Promised to be set for you, by the way. It's about every week. To feed you. To set a table for you in the midst of your foes. In the midst of your wilderness. In the midst of your sucky life. In what ways does anticipating the second coming bring you joy? When a Christian family member you're loving and missing from the table... Or the party, particularly during these days, when that pang hits your heart, do you just stay at the morning, in the morning? Or are you able to look forward in joy, knowing that one day you'll be around the table again, together, in the presence of the Lord? That's what Isaiah is talking about in our first reading. All three of those types of joys fulfilled in rich imagery here in Isaiah chapter 65 when he writes, speaking for the Lord, behold be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and no more shall be heard and at the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Why does Isaiah go on to talk about the infant that dies within the week or the old man who's cut down before his prime? Because, dear friends, God is not a stranger to the sorrow. He's not a stranger to the crappiness of life. He's not a stranger to the isolation that we feel here. And those things will be redeemed and restored John the Baptist knows this. This is all going through his mind. That's why he says, my joy is full. Who cares that they're going to Jesus to be baptized? This is the guy that we were awaiting. My joy is full. St. Augustine, that great saint and teacher, meditates on this passage. I'll just read to you a short form of his meditation. He says, how can Jesus increase? being God how can Jesus increase being God this is a great mystery he continues will you glorify in yourself will you grow you will grow but you will grow worse and evil if you glorify in yourself for whoever grows worse is justly decreased Let God then, who is ever perfect, grow and grow in you. For the more you understand God and apprehend Him, He seems to be growing in you. But in Him, self, He does not grow, always being perfect. And so his meditation is that when John says he must increase and I must decrease, what John the Baptist is saying is that It's not like God's getting bigger and greater and more glorious, right? Jesus isn't increasing in that sense. But what St. Augustine is saying is that in the follower of Jesus, Jesus grows. He increases as we decrease. What is that? Those of you that are in school, an inverse relationship, is that right? It's been a while. As he grows, we increase. You, You can't both... Increase at the same time, right? One has to go up and the other has to go down. But of course, the great mystery is that as Christ grows in you, you become more of who he created you to be. Because he's also your author. In Advent, dear friends, see and embrace each form of joy. Let Jesus increase in you. Let's decrease together so that he may increase. That we might have more joy. That we might be able to rejoice always. Rejoice in Jesus. And your sorrows will be redeemed. Your sorrows will be redeemed. Maybe not right now. Maybe you're not going to feel it right away. But there's a promise there. The mourning and lament and the sorrow. Yes, there's times for that and we should do that. This is not like walking around with a fake, sappy, Christianese happiness on. It's not like we never mourn that the joy is underneath it. Rejoice always. Jesus is the oasis. Don't wander around or swim around whatever image you want to use aimlessly through this life, struggling without the joy that God's given you. Jesus holds his hand out to you in word, in sacrament, in community. Get on board. Get on board. Quit chasing the boat. Get on the ark. Or start chasing the boat if you're just wandering around. (laughs) Jesus is here. Rejoice always. Rejoice in anticipation. Jesus has ascended. That's not the end. We fully realize that Jesus as the groom has departed from this world for a while, leaving in his place the Holy Spirit. It's important that the church realize that the entirety of Isaiah 65, the entirety of this prophecy, is not yet fulfilled. It's not yet fulfilled. The fullness of God dwelling with man has happened in the person of Jesus, and yet the fullness of the kingdom still tarries, as we talked about last week, for our benefit that more might come to know and love him. But be assured, the new heavens and the new earth, while yet to come, are coming, are coming. My dad got me a hat. I didn't bring it today, but he got me a hat for Christmas. We had our Christmas party yesterday, and it said, Normalcy is not coming back. Jesus is. I think it's a great hat for (laughs) post-COVID. Normalcy is not coming back. Jesus is. Dear friends, he is. Indeed. In the meantime, rejoice. Hold fast. Spread the gospel and the good news. Throw out ropes to other people that they can come onto the boat too. For Christ has come and will come again. And in closing, I'll read to you from our epistle. Chapter 5, verse 23. I enjoy I ask you to bow your heads. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.